0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast series from Backstreet to Wall Street, where entrepreneurs from around the world use innovative business models to solve some of the world's most pressing business problems. Leaders in the impact investing movement, who are providing the capital to fuel the growth, drive these conversations. Your hosts are Mukul Pandya, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton, and Doreen Shinaz, Founder and CEO of Impact Investment Exchange, one of the pioneers in promoting impact investing in Asia.
0: Data can tell you anything or nothing at all. That's what was famously written uh, in Forbes magazine. And in a world overwhelmed with data, it is becoming more important than ever to know how to collect, analyze, and apply the data in impact investing, we are communicating social and environmental impact to the investors that we have, that have always operated in a data driven environment, but just on the financial side. And now we can harness the data effectively in order to scale the social side hand in hand. So today we have with us Mr. Zia Khan, VP of uh, Initiatives and Strategy at the Rockefeller Foundation, one of the largest foundations in the U.S. And with a focus on helping data and technology become more useful tools for those seeking to address the big challenges of our time, Zia, welcome and thank you for joining our show today.
2: Great, thank you very much, Doreen. It's a real pleasure to join you here.
0: Great. So, Zia, let's just let's get started. I mean, you know, when I get, I you know, I get the sense data is now the biggest word around, and uh, especially now uh, with all the things we're hearing about Facebook and we're hearing about. Uh, Blockchain and everything, fintech data. This is this is these are the buzzwords. So uh, I'm sure the listeners are just dying to hear more about it. But before we get there, it's always interesting for us to hear from our, um, you know, from from our guest. How did they make this journey? So tell us a little bit about yourself uh, in terms of how you made this journey from uh, the work that you were doing to this world of data, and frankly, of course, in this show, connecting backstreet to Wall Street.
2: Sure. Um it's a great uh, it's a great question uh journey. and I can I can talk about my journey and I can also give you a little bit of background on the Rockefeller Foundation uh and it, data and its role. So personally, uh, I've been with the foundation for about 8 years now uh in a range of roles, but really thinking about our programmatic strategy and how do we uh set strategy, how do we monitor it and how do we measure results uh, of which data is critical to all parts of that. Uh, before um, joining the foundation, I used to work as a management consultant uh, working mm-hmm. on strategy where often you'd use uh, data and analyses to inform big choices uh, to maximize performance. And before that, I used to do uh, research in fluid dynamics, which is sort of a branch wow. of engineering and physics, which certainly had a right. lot of data. Uh, so I'm okay. pretty uh, you know, comfortable with so data. From physics to doing social data. good.
0: I'm sorry. So yeah. So hear- from from so I I, I was saying just for our, our listeners, um, I don't know if they caught that. So so you are basically uh, this physics nerd who went <laughs> from there to doing social good and using data in both places. Is that true? <laughs>
2: I think I think that it's been put okay. that way in a few other contexts. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, so so I'm a fan of data, but I also and I think most people who are familiar with data also recognize when data can be overused uh, and when okay. people think they have precision and they don't. And sometimes you have to go on hunch and qualitative uh, analyses as well. So, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm very excited. And with Dr. Uh, Rod Shah joining the foundation a year ago, he has really put data and technology at kind of like the center of the vision for the foundation, how we go forward. Now, when we put data um, and technology at the center of Rockefeller Foundation's vision, Uh, It's actually not that new a thing for the Rockefeller Foundation. We actually got started 104 years ago, right around the time when scientific management uh, was a big deal. And Frederick Taylor was timing people in factories, and they were really using the scientific method to solve a lot of problems. Yes, yes, yes. And the Rockefeller Foundation wanted to bring that to solving social challenges. And we coined the term scientific philanthropy, which was this idea of, how do we get very analytical, very data-driven around understanding problems, measuring the effect of interventions, and then scaling up the ones that really worked. And I have these beautiful annual reports going back to 1918 uh, that show charts, you know, that they used with the public around here's an intervention to reduce malaria, and uh, it seems to work and how we could scale it up. So it's been part of our DNA for
0: a while. Right. Because also Rockefeller was behind... um from what I've heard, um, sort of the whole green revolution that happened, and as well as um, obviously, you know, ICDDRB, you know, for the cholera research and all that in Bangladesh as well. So these are all, I'm assuming, there was a lot of data that went behind, uh, you know, sort of finding the solution. It sounds like
2: exactly, you know, and data really helps you understand the nature of the problem. Uh, thinking about data ahead of time helps you structure your experiments and your interventions. Um, Measuring data helps you prove what works, what doesn't work, and then you can monitor and scale things up and really make the case to people. So data has always been really important. What's different today is how available data is. So a lot of what we used to do in the past, and quite frankly, a lot of what philanthropy does today, is invest quite a bit in producing data. And what we need to do is recognize we live in a new era where there's a ton of data available And the art shouldn't necessarily be in producing new data, but in taking the biggest advantage of all the data that's there. And that's where we're really excited about all the progress that's been made in terms of the satellite imagery data that's available, all the data that we have now even from call phone records, et cetera, about people Mm -hmm. that can be used to solve problems. There's of course a flip side, uh, as we've seen with all the uh, Cambridge Analytica work with uh, Facebook and the right. c- concerns about social media and digital idea as well.
0: So, so tell us, tell us a little bit, and sort of you know, staying in the social, our social side, not not obviously, uh, um, you know, social media, but um, in, in sort of the social environmental side. Uh, what are some of the exciting things that Rockefeller is working on right now that? Uh, um is using data, and even sort of the sort of the more of the exciting data we're hearing about of the technology that we're hearing about.
2: Sure. And, and maybe I'll describe um, you know two categories of work uh, that we're exploring right now. So one category of work that we're exploring is what we're just loosely calling um, the digital state. And what uh-huh. we mean by this are the interesting technologies like blockchain, like digital ID, that are coming into play. That are really represent foundational technologies, and these are like new forms of public infrastructure and new forms of public goods mm. that allow governments and other institutions to innovate on top of them and reach many right. people. And this is different than social entrepreneurs who are developing a specific product or a specific application mm. that goes directly to people. So, in some so this ways, is almost
0: I, like infrastructure that you're exactly, putting Exactly,
2: in. exactly. Infrastructure so
0: for public good.
2: That's exactly right. So it's like how, you know, GPS was developed and then lots of applications were built on GPS that allow you to do many new things. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit how we see blockchain and digital ID. It's Mm -hmm. sort of a new foundational technology upon which lots of new things can be done. So the questions Mm -hmm. are what's the right way to deploy these technologies? What new risks are there? What are the opportunities? Um, and also, what does government look like and how does it need to govern uh, and set new regulations in this sort of new world? So that's kind of like a broad category of work that we're exploring. Right. Another area that and we're And what's
0: happening in that before going to the next one? Uh, what, sure. is, is is this something still at the concept stage or are you seeing uh, work happening? Are you seeing governments sort of building on it? I mean, where are we with this?
2: So we're seeing um, a few things happening. So one is uh, there's increasing appetite to learn more from some of the countries uh, that have really done some breakthrough work. So examples from Estonia, from India, and uh, in India in particular in terms of the Aadhaar system that they've rolled out and, and what they've built on top of it. Now, at the same time, Aadhaar is creating lots of concerns in India around privacy and what kind of regulations need to be put in place, et cetera. So I think people know there's momentum, there's opportunity, but we just need to think about what are the new rules of the game. Uh, when we think nice. about uh, digital ID and um, uh, and all the ways that people, you know, think about privacy, do we need to rethink what privacy means, et cetera? So there's lots mm-hmm. of pilots and implementations happening at different scales, and we're just trying to learn from all of them uh, around how they okay. work. Uh, okay. On on this on another dimension, though, is I think people are really thinking about. Um, what are the ethical frameworks that we need to consider here? You know, what questions should go into the design of these systems up front so we can avoid some of the problems that that we're seeing now and that probably could happen? Um, There's also, I think, efforts uh, to create more standards of interoperability between these technologies. You know, there's lots of fragmentation, lots of people are trying things, but how do we make sure we don't replicate, you know, some of the situations that we had here in the U.S., when cell phones first came out and, you know, things were very fragmented, lots of different systems, and it was very hard to get things to work together. So I think there's excitement from experiments and pilots that are happening. There's good questions being asked around what are the frameworks and ethics of this, and then thinking about how do we scale this and get this to mature by creating interoperability on a whole new set of standards. I think that's a whole sort of package of work that's happening, given that this is a pretty early-stage technology.
0: So now, what is the social impact sort of fall into all this in terms of the work that
2: you're doing? So the the social impact side um, uh, of this uh, uh, is is really interesting and critical, and this is part of part of what we're learning from partners who aren't active in technologies, but we're trying to introduce these ideas and see how they might react to it. So you know, there's blockchain. Everyone associates blockchain with you know Bitcoin and currencies and things like mm-hmm. that. But there's actually remarkable applications for it when you think of it as something that helps build trust. Uh, And when you think about that capability,
0: verification. Mm
2: -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. When you think about that capability, then you think about all the situations where trust really matters. And I'll give you two examples. Mm -hmm. One is let's say there's a humanitarian uh, situation or disaster. Let's say a hurricane hits an area. Something that's really critical is to make sure we can get cash and supplies to people very quickly. Um, But that's hard to do in these situations. Uh, Blockchain technologies, and they're experimenting with this, can work uh, when either it's a hurricane that's hit or it's it's a refugee situation. But wherever people find themselves out of their normal social and economic construct, um, you can really have trust built in quickly uh, for these kinds of recovery operations. So that's very interesting. There's another area that's very interesting um, that we've been talking to a few people about, which is around land records. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so much of the world has insecure land rights or informal land rights. And how might you use blockchain technologies to um, create assets that are verifiable mm-hmm. and stay with people over time? Uh, that's another sort of big opportunity. So, I think the key, as the key with all technologies, is not to think about the technology like blockchain, but to think about what right. it can help create like trust. Right. And yeah. that opens up possibilities.
0: Now, um, in terms of, of course, you know, with with um, with all of this, I mean, this is such incredible potential. But also, when you think of the ultimate beneficiary, you know, thinking of uh, you know that woman in remote part of, of uh, Bangladesh, or you know India or Guatemala, I mean wherever they are, I mean, uh, the reality is, even if you're using this the the technology, does the ultimate beneficiary um, have a voice? in this process? Because does that woman have a smartphone to be able to put that information in, or what's the incentive for her to put the information in? So how how are you sort of looking at all this where, you know, data, um, when it comes in, it's fantastic, but the collection of the data and uh, the purity of the data, um, you know, is that, is that something that's explored?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Doreen, and I think I'll I'll look at it sort of at two angles. So the first angle might be where is their voice in the design of these systems, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's one of the risks because these are um, you know because they are public infrastructure and public good, they almost by necessity need to be designed top down, uh, you know, to make mm-hmm. sure that they cut across all the silos in government and they address the system as a whole. Uh, and it's hard for people to participate in the design of uh, what are often top-down systems. So that's why some of the work, um, for example, we funded the Georgetown Beck Center to look at the ethical design of blockchain Systems, hmm. how do we make sure in the process of that design that there are opportunities and proactive opportunities to reach out and consider the voice of people who might otherwise be marginalized or whose interests might yes. otherwise not be who represented? Who may not even
0: know how to read and write, right? So they won't be able to use the smartphone very effectively.
2: Yeah, exactly. Not pictures, uh, or, you
0: know,
2: yes. Because mm-hmm. c- otherwise it'll be driven by the interests of big technology companies. Um, hmm. uh, and that's what we've sort of seen in the past as well. So, there's something about just making sure the process by which these systems are designed proactively reaches out and finds some way to represent uh, their interests. The second is once these systems are up and running, what kind of degrees of freedom do people have? And I think we're seeing, um, you know, in Europe, the regulations that have just come out uh, on uh, data, uh, the GDRP regulations. Um, uh, are now trying to put the uh, control back into the user. So how do we start to think about users as owning, controlling, and giving permission uh, and uh, their, for their data and allowing their data to be portable from one company to another versus uh, companies or other large actors owning that data? So I think once we take a user-centric view of the rights that people have to their data, then I think that starts to translate into your questions around what kind of choices people can make, etc.,
0: right, right, and it is it is very interesting because um we do see in the field, and I think this goes to uh you know sort of uh, I remember when in you know, a couple of decades ago when prahalat came out with his book, Bottom of the Pyramid, it was really all about bringing uh products and services you know to the last mile, but one of the essential questions that was missing is do they have the choice and do they have the ability to actually purchase these products? So are we kind of playing a role in that as well? So, you know, it is very, very interesting sort of looking at this whole thing holistically. Um, again, also on the data side in terms of do they have the choice if they want to share the data and do they know what they're sharing? So I think in terms of all the work that Rockefeller has done and, you know, obviously the organization has been a leader, you know, in in, in the space, um, you know, in, in the development space. Do you see all this work now sort of having an underlying um, sort of a data element to it for the current form? Um, you know, obviously, it sounds like there is a whole history behind using data. But uh, how are you looking at it vis-a-vis all your investments, all the grant making, sort of the overarching work that you're doing?
2: Um, sure, sure. No, it's, it's a really good question, one that we're, um, we're talking about uh, quite a bit here, and it's probably my top priority uh, these days as well, uh, because we've recognized that we as a foundation have to transform um, how we operate as well, and there's probably three levels that we have to think about it. So one is what I've been talking about, uh, which is, you know, what are the interesting data and technology opportunities that are happening there? The second would be cutting across all of our initiatives in terms of health or food or U.S. jobs, where are the real opportunities for us to operate differently uh, and think about working with our partners differently with data. And I'll give you a quick example. We've been doing a lot of work on um, food waste here in the U.S., and there's a grantee Mm -hmm. that's doing fantastic work where they go out to cities and they measure the amount of food waste, um, and then they come back with, you know, synthesized reports and PDFs. Now, while Mm -hmm. they're getting all that, uh, while they're producing the report, they're actually getting a lot of great data uh, around cities and what people are doing and their behaviors that we're hoping that we can get access and put on a platform uh, so that we can use Mm -hmm. it and other people can use it and access it. So, a lot of how we've operated is kind of very synthesized data locked in PDFs. And what we're trying to get to is how do we get more live, active feeds of data. Um, that people can use to problem solve uh, and that they can access and integrate with other data systems. So that's just a different way of kind of thinking about and what are the opportunities when you think that way in health and agriculture and employment issues on urban resilience, et cetera, and even in innovative finance. You know, what kind of opportunities get unlocked once you get more specific and measurable ways to measure the social impact so you can balance the financial returns and social impact more precisely. Um, And then there's, you know, inside our organization, we have to change our own culture, our own way of looking at things. Um, How do we think about tapping into all the data that's available to inform our decisions? How do we get more data-driven around shaping our strategies? How do we monitor our work on a monthly basis versus waiting for a six-month evaluation to come back? There's a lot of behaviors that we ourselves have to change as well. Um, So we're, we're hitting at it at multiple levels.
0: Right, right. Well, this this sounds like a mammoth task, Zia. It is. It is quite mind blowing with you know all the dimensions of it.
2: Well, um, it, it is, uh, but and and I don't think it's that different than say you know one of the first uh, uh, an earlier technology revolution of you know 20, 30 years ago, when people really started to first use computers uh, into their offices and when you know spreadsheets used to be this exotic tool. Now it's very common. The Internet okay. used to be sort of exotic. Now it's very common. So I think, uh, you know, someone once said that uh, the future happens suddenly and slowly. And I think that's the okay. phase we're in yeah. right now. You know, some things will be slow in how they develop and grow, and some things will have to move very quickly.
0: Right. And so so what what gives you kind of hope that this is all going to happen and, uh we will have a better world in connecting the back street to Wall Street. I mean, what's your sort of, uh, you know, notion of hope and all this and uh, where it's data-driven and what will happen? Tell us.
2: Well, you know, one area I, of hope that I have, um, and Dren, you'd be very familiar with this because you're, uh, you're a significant leader in this area, is around the notion of people integrating, you know, the business results and the social results and trying to minimize the trade-off that people see. So all all the great work that your organization has been doing around mobilizing uh, private sector capital into social impact opportunities and just the culture um, and the mindset that people have uh, when they see from their investments or even their day-to-day work in companies that they want to have that kind of social impact and they're not putting it into a, a separate compartment. So I feel hope in that there's a lot of uh, really good um, resources that are getting put into play. The second area where I have hope is that because we're so much more of a connected world and we have um, greater awareness uh, of what's happening, I think we can tap into the ingenuity of lots more people. Um, so to me, for example, it's very exciting to see other countries looking to a country like India to learn about digital mm-hmm. ID, how to implement it, etc. I don't think 50 or 60 years ago people would have been looking uh, to the global south for solutions. But now we have uh, more solutions emerging from more people and if we can be disciplined about focusing on the best ones and scaling them up then i think we have a larger number of solutions coming to bear so the combination of more resources coming into play and a broader scope of solutions from which to choose from uh, excites me quite a bit
0: right and i think i think i i completely uh, concur with that and uh, and we see this we absolutely see this and we do see uh a lot of South-South cooperation. We see a, a lot of application that's happening, and you're absolutely right. Uh, this, is, this is very exciting. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, and, uh, you know, it's really, it really makes, makes me and I know the listeners very hopeful with the work that you're doing and, uh, and great job at it. So, so thank you so very much, and thank you for coming on the show.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a really fun discussion.
1: Earlier we heard from Rockefeller Foundation's Zia Khan about how one of the largest foundations in the US is using data and technology to address the biggest challenges of our time. Now we will hear from Rory Riggs, founder and CEO of Locus Analytics, an economic research and data analytics firm. It is developing a new systems model to locate, map and study the components of an economy which allows researchers, policymakers, investors, entrepreneurs, and anyone interested in economic data to sort, splice, and analyze data in previously impossible ways. Uh, Doreen and Rory, thank you so much for joining us today in Knowledge at Wharton Podcasts.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Mukul. Um, Rory, thank you so much for joining us. And we are very, very excited. Um, you know, It's the second part of our discussion on really what do we mean by driving data for impact. So before we jump into talking about the work at Locus, which we want to hear about, uh, we want to hear about who Rory is. I mean what what got Rory into all this and what excites you? and then let's hear about Locus.
3: Thank you I'd, I'd love to I, I'm I was kind of a math major in college who somehow got involved in in, in biotechnology and I spent most of my career working with scientists, building um, biotechnology platforms. These were long projects where we, we did fundamental research, ending up in in, in in some of the most important products in in, in, in healthcare today. Um, and as I was doing that work, I, I realized that the, the way we handled data in the sciences was different than business. And So I got really excited about trying to figure out how to build a platform for business that was comparable to the platform for science. What's different is in the science world, we have you know, locations like genomic locations that we can map things to and relate them to other to other species or other vehicles. And I just didn't know why in business, rather than these hierarchical systems, we couldn't develop an attribute-based um, classification system which allowed you to locate each business or job or product and be able to see how that job or product performed in different areas of the world to be able to create almost a network of, of all economic activity based on fundamental attributes on the function of a business. And, and so it was really my fundamental work in biotechnology and understanding how we use data to take a disease and, and, and take one attribute of a disease and be able to look at how other diseases match that that got me doing what I'm doing. And I'm very excited because I think we're at the precipice of a really important idea of connecting the impact world to the developing economy through a system of functional coordinates. And really, that's what gets me going every morning
0: right so so this is very very interesting so really taking that understanding of of how this interrelation is in the science world and now bringing it to the business world so before we go into the impact side just uh, can you tell our listeners i mean how locus analytics really works i mean how does it kind of harness that power of interrelation in data
3: and, and so you have to take a look at, at something called a coordinate system. In geography, we map things according to your location. So when you look at your computer, it says, can I use a location-based, your location to relate you to the things around you? And mm-hmm. we have built a coordinate-based system based on function. And so when a user in the impact world says, can I, can I do look, use location-based services, I'm going to have you tell me your function. I'm going to show you all the functions that you need and relate around you. And so this whole idea that you can take just the things you do normally and take for granted, but math is function that suddenly you can use a, a robust classification system to understand better who you are, who's around you, and then how to find other people who are like you. Uh, and, and, and really, uh, fundamentally, that's how this system should work when, it, when it's completed. And, and really, we've taken right. a production system from inputs to outputs and, and allow you to figure out where you are in that process.
0: Right. Okay. Can you walk us through an example? I mean, that sounds very, very interesting, and you know, it's really looking at it from a very different perspective. Can you walk us through an example of how it works?
3: Yeah, it, It's actually a very simple model at its, at its most basic. It's, it's, as An input model has inputs and outputs, and so in any business, there's a group of people who are responsible for buying things, transporting them, and setting them up for your business, and there's another whole set of people who are responsible for actually doing the business, designing the product, building the product, and getting it ready for shipment another group who's involved in selling that product, another group that's involved in managing the cash. And so you'd like to say, which part of that system do you locate in? And, and if you're in a developing world, a big part of the developing world are people who are, who are building new businesses. And, and they would be, like, a, in a phase one, thinking through, what is the business we're going to build? And, and number two is, says, once you've built it, which is a phase two, so you say, my most easy thing is phase two is building, 2.2 is building, And E is farming. So if you're in farming in a rural area, you'd be 2.2E. Or if you're in technology, you'd be 2.2C information. And so you basically have locations based on a system of activities. And it's really just numbering systems activities 1 to 12, breaking them into groups and going, production is number five, and that's what you do. And who else does that? And what is the product of what you do? And, And so it's a very simple sort of activity wheel, which we believe captures every activity in the economy. And, and these activities are the same in Kilgali as they are in New York. You know, we have our, 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 our logo for our company is orange because orange exists in every other country in the world. And the outside, <laughs> it looks very different thing in the country, but inside it's all the same. And we think economies are the same way, and this system allows you to map that.
0: Is that helpful? Yes, no, it is. So now the question is who will use this data? So if I am, uh, um, you know, small shopkeeper and I can I hear you in terms of you know the activity that I have, the people I'm buying from, the people I'm selling from, you're capturing all of that. Now I as a little shop owner, will I have access to this data? Will I know like how I can be more efficient or you know whether I can buy more cheaply? I mean how will it affect me as a shop owner
3: So, so one of our mottos at the company is McKinsey Quality Information to the bottom of the pyramid for free. And so I'm hoping that every impact worker will have access to understanding what their business is and how their business is performed around the world. And one of the hottest startups in in, in the Bay Area right now is something called the Farmers Business Network. And The Farmers Business Network is crowdsourcing all these farmers to be able to talk to each other and be able to relate their information, maybe be able to buy crops, real-time information about about how crops are doing in any given season, new products. And, 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 and this is going to happen industry by industry. And I think that what the promise of a model like mine is, you can be in Kilgalley or <laughs> you can be in Johannesburg and you can suddenly um, take a look at your business and maybe create your own networks. It's a neat way of saying once I put my own code on myself that I can find other people that do that and we can start building neat networks that allow people to communicate, people could sell to them directly, um, I think that the other thing this offers for you, if you're in policy in the third world country or any country, suddenly understanding how your economy has developed and what you're doing and be able to compare that to other communities, you now that's what we would call a clinical model for economic development. And we believe our codes facilitate you doing a clinical model because it built, allows you to build a standardized representation of your community and be able to compare it to a standardized representation of Detroit or New York or, you know, Stockton, California is very interesting for the development world because Stockton, California is a transportation hub for all the farm areas around California. If you're mm-hmm. building a, a hub, a merchant hub in, in, in a developing an impact country, wouldn't you like to know about the businesses that have formed and developed in, Amer- in, a, in American distribution centers and, and start building your models around that? And that's the promise of a system where you suddenly have a location and a system and say, I'm the drivetrain. Who else is in the drivetrain business? And allow you to look at it. And I think for both policymakers and entrepreneurs, it, it it gives a brand new perspective for understanding your business and for talking and relating to others.
0: I mean, this is absolutely mind-blowingly you know, amazing. And I think what I love about it is the whole aspect of, uh, frankly, democratization of data. Um, yes. I mean, this obviously... You know, people talk about it, but this is actually something that you're doing. And, uh, you know, basically, I would think in some ways, you know, you're doing what World Bank should be doing, what various U.N. bodies should be doing. So why do you think it has not happened before? Why aren't they looking at it, or are they? I mean, where does that stand?
3: So a couple things. I have a presentation to the World Bank, if you speak, next week Mm -hmm. to talk about this topic. Um, I think also I've been going to governments. I finally just reach an agreement with the government of, of Rwanda to start mm-hmm. developing survey tools for Rwanda that would allow us to start mapping their community in, in, in a functional mapping context. And that's my dream, is actually the World Bank should do it. But each government should, what, we would, what we've would, we told Rwanda, we tell others, is that once I have your system mapped in our system, I will handle the developing world. And so right now I've already mapped China England, France, United States, Mexico. So one by one, the developing countries, because of open source data, are making that data available, and we're creating these maps. And the promise is going to be in the impact world, if you could let me come in and map your community, I will allow you then to compare your communities to all these developing world countries. And so we're doing this on our own, and and my real hope is with the World Bank, is it's the promise for the impact world to leapfrog technology. That's what the democracy of data does here, right? It allows them to say, I'm in this community, but I can now look at what I think is the most sophisticated model for my activity and move right to that without having an evolutionary step. And that's the promise. And so I hope to the World Bank and hopefully to the Rwanda government as this progresses is that I can suddenly take their system and they can keep classifying the way they do it. We'll just move it into a functional location so we can look at it from a different perspective. And so we're trying and hopefully sometime... Right. You know, it's something so do you think there's
0: also sort of, in some ways, when data is available like this, and this, this, say, 10 years from now, you have, you know, say, 100 countries who have given you the data, and their community level people are sort of exchanging data information. What does that mean in a macroeconomic level for the countries? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it uh, um, promoting free trade? It's actually scary for the country? I mean, what does that mean?
3: I believe it's it is the ultimate free trade tool, but but most importantly for these countries is um, is it allows you to leapfrog. It allows you to give you perfect information at any given point in time. So the speed of change in business will become that much fat more, or much faster. You know, it, I, I will I will soon be able to map for you new business startups in the United States. So if you're in an impact world and you're looking at building a logistics business to handle all the supply it would be fun to see the new logistics businesses starting. So you'll have instantaneous information in my world of all the new technologies. And, and those people also have views to you to sell you their materials. And so there's this dream in these business networks that not only do you have access to the most interesting information, that you can almost have Amazon.Amazon procurement pages equal to your specific location in the economy. And they keep you up to date on what's current. It, it, I, I, I I think it just speeds the rate of change, but more importantly, it speeds the rate of developing and development worlds because it allows them to leapfrog and gives them pretty perfect information about the technology that works for them in their context at their point in time.
1: Uh, Rory, I have a question for you. This is what you said is so so interesting. Uh, how, how do you keep your data current? Uh, because let's say, go back to the example you gave of the rate of new business formation, uh, let's say, uh, in a certain area, there are a lot of startups in logistics, as you said. But as we yep. all know, there is uh, 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 new companies, especially, there's a high rate of mortality. Uh, and, right. and, and so a, a few years down the road, if a certain number of them go out of business, how do you make sure that your data is current? And, and, and because that really affects the credibility of your service.
3: Well, there's two there's a, that is the perfect question right now. My first job is to prove to people that to get the whole world mapped, to prove to people that the whole world is the same. You know, logistics is 2, 1.1 div in every country in the world. So first, I give you a perfect view of logistics. The second, I give you a perfect view of startups and logistics. And then the question is, how do you keep it up? Right now, much of my data is coming, like for China, from a China census. But once it's up, my hope is that everybody will have their own home page. And I'm just going to create home pages for you and people can decide whether they want to update them or not or I will figure out how best to keep it current. You know, we're building machine learning tools that can read websites and update business summaries by reading websites and classifying them by reading websites. Um, so I believe over time most will have a website or they'll start to. There's no perfect world if you if my dream is 150 countries and you know I already have over 50 million companies in my database. I have 100 50 million jobs in America in my database. So how to keep those current without having it be crowdsourced in some manner is not logical, right? And so I believe that I don't have a perfect answer to you, but I think that if what I'm doing is important enough, just like people will update their Facebook page, I'm hoping that people like our Wikipedia page will take ownership of the page they care about so that that page stays current.
0: So, Laurie, how does this link to the, on the other side uh, with the market? How does the How does the... Uh, financial market react to something
3: like this. Well, there's two parts to the financial market. One of the problems we solve for the financial markets is in large portfolios of securities. If you're in venture or if you're in in, in like a S&P 500, is you try to diversify businesses that correlate together, and, and mm-hmm. or in your insurance and risk management, you want to find things that that do the same thing, and this gives you the perfect tool you know, we believe fundamentally the reason businesses move up or down is because they do the same things. Credit card companies move with credit card companies. Drug companies move with drug companies. So we have the perfect system for grouping things together. And so we're already, every major index, S&P, MSCI, Wilshire, and, and Russell are now running indexes using my technology to group companies that that, 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 that correlate because of function and diversify your portfolio based on that. You know, we have insurance companies who are looking and saying maybe disability problems are related to jobs, specific jobs. They never had a tool to do that. And so in the financial world, this ability to accurately identify groups of things and, and start to understand from a data perspective whether there's high correlations, it's like saying gene three, five, and six correlate to herbicide-resistant plants. Once you know that, you now have a system that you can go find the other places that do that and in the financial world, we're getting really good traction by people realizing they now have a new tool to identify and, and, and then manage risk because they can they can see it more clearly and, and, I, and I think for the debt world the right. same problem.
0: And how, is this, how does this work with what say Bloomberg or Reuters um, you know what they're providing now uh, to the financial markets? I mean, does this
3: sort of complement it, or is it a, is it a will they see this as a competition as it as it becomes bigger and bigger? my my hope is, and and and, and we're in the throes of talking to them all now. Is right now they use what we would call a nominal versus an ordinal system. A nominal system is a system that's sort of a fixed hierarchy that has no chance of keeping up with with technology changes because every ten years they update it, you know. And so it's, you, you worry about the system being updated, not the companies, as the professor asked. What we allow you to do is, at any given point in time, be able to create. We have a new tool we've built in order for taking out to the financial market, which allows you to build, you through coordinates, the things that you care the most about, and then find everybody who does that. So if a stock goes plummeting, you want to quickly find out everybody else who has attributes related to that stock, don't you? And so we believe this gives you a brand new tool to, on a custom basis, be able to look at changes in the marketplace and... Um, you haven't been here for a while, but if you see this new tool we've built, it's an amazing tool which allows you, in, in most of these nominal systems, there's not even an ag industry because the, the ag equipment is over in, in, in the equipment section, and ag chemicals is over in the chemical section, and, and, and farming is over in the food section, and, and so you, you can't even find out if you want to invest in agriculture what it looks like. We can build you a, we call them barcodes. But a barcode of attributes which matches what we believe is the whole agriculture industry and look at it. So this idea of building mm-hmm. custom industries as they evolve, we never thought that managing, storing information and making it available, which is a key business in the impact world, right? It is what Google and Bloomberg yes, do. Yes, who, thought, who thought that would have been a real business? And that's a 1.32 C right in our world. We know exactly what it is. We can find it everywhere. But unless you have a tool that allows you to understand than location. We do it for weather patterns all the time. We're now just being be able to do it in functions. So I think we were we were getting really positive feedback from the market as they see this tool and realize the power of building custom groupings on the spot to try to understand what's happening in any given marketplace. And I think for African right. countries what would be really important is to look at balance of payments or Indian countries because you don't have the ability to discern that. Your, your economy, if you're building the economy, like the United States in the 60s, is a very different economy if you're mature now. You have a completely different distribution, and and you need right. a way to standardize it, and that's what we offer.
0: Right. Oh, very true. So for our listeners, uh, we're listening to From Backstreet to Wall Street, a series that explores how impact investing is linking the remotest parts of the world to the global financial markets, and today's episode is Driving Data for Impact, and we have as our guest, Rory Riggs from Locus Analytics. I read somewhere in terms of some of the relational data that uh, Locus is working on, and one example was a very interesting one, which was uh, what Tesco has in its loyalty program to track and find the correlation between purchases. So, you know, interestingly, I think uh, from the example that was given, that, uh, you know, sort of interesting correlation that pops up for you in terms of, say, families which are buying kind of baby wipes also buy more beers because the fathers of young children have less time to go to the pub. So they're now, so Tesco is now, you know, mailing families, you know, with discount coupons for milk, but as long, you know, along with it for beer. So it is, you know, it is very interesting. Do you have sort of examples like that sort of which is, uh, um, you know, much more sort of uh, closer to home in terms of people understanding that the correlation of the data
3: um the best examples we have right now for that is really looking at, at, at the barcode for a business like Tesla and saying um, where do they fit into your in, – wh- who are their peers? Are their peers, as they say, the, the people who do, um, the energy peers, or is they, are their peers the automobile peers? And so to be able to look at those from that context, I, I think that um, – mm-hmm. I, I do believe that most of the, the big companies who are talking to us – are very interested in mapping their supply chain so they can understand exactly the question you asked because they, they have this big supply chain and they don't really know who these customers are and actually what their needs are. And if they knew their needs, the better they would be able to group them in a way to say, boy, this is why they're buying my product and I can design my product more specifically. And the big companies, we have large data sets. We're not talking about, you know, somebody selling chemicals to a farm, right, As somebody who's actually building a, a multi-regional demand chain, right, that it's really important to be able to understand what they are and how they vary in, 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 in their requirements. And I think that the, this right. ability to map it is, 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 is critically important, and mapping supply right. chains is, is really ground zero because you're...
0: And one I'm of the things we're seeing in supply... Uh, one, one thing, Rory, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that is... Um, in the countries um, that we work in across sort of the emerging economies, we do see that uh, now there's a big trend, and uh, we are part of many of this, which is uh, at IX, is the supply chain where we're looking at verification, you know, sort of what I guess we say in the U.S. from, you know, kind of the the, the farm to, you know, I forget the term, like farm to plate or something. So it, in terms of the entire supply chain, What we see is now blockchain being used for the verification on every stage. And yes, you're right, with the barcode sort of playing a big role in this. So I'm curious to hear in terms of this sort of now picking up in the emerging markets, is this something that with the locus analytics, it can be done more effectively or it will be more efficient? I mean, how does your work fit into what's already being done right now?
3: with uh, the blockchain technology? I'm not sure exactly how blockchain fits into our business model. I do think what you do have is not so much verification, but we'd look at it as transparency. It is, is you have transparency of who the companies are in this section. And, and and one of the big things in the United States is they're asking the question about whether they should pay for Amazon to come to their city, or they should pay for the local businesses. they loan that money to local businesses to build up their, their towns in a, in, in, in a more efficient manner and which is more efficient dollars and, and what that dollars you do is give you transparency for financing so for your business, if I could give you transparency to all these marketplaces um, you now from a financial point of view can, can think through where is the most impact for your dollars is your impacting your dollars getting the infrastructure set up or building bringing the other business in and you can certainly make infrastructure based functional identities. And map them, and start to understand the uh, I, 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 a way to benchmark and grade your investments, and make them much more targeted. And, and so I think the transparency and targeting is more of our, our is, is where, is where we, we will stand out.
0: Great, and that's a that's a good point to uh, to wrap up our conversation because transparency is really the key to to a lot of these things. And, uh, and we wish Locust all the best because you're doing fantastic work. And thank you so much for being in our show.
3: Thank you for taking the time to listen to me.
0: For
1: more insight
0: from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.